Hey everybody and welcome to episode one of the Adventures in Angular podcast. This week on our panel we have Joe Eames. Hey everybody. Aaron Frost. Hello. Brian Ford. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv and we have Mishko Hevery here to help us kick off the show. Thanks for having me. Mishko. Mishko. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> we love you. So the, the title of this show is The Birth of Angular, and, and we're going to just talk about where Angular came from. Before we do that, though, I just want to briefly talk about the show itself. We're going to be doing a few things a little bit differently on the show. One of the first things that's different is that it's going to be a little bit shorter. The other shows, we usually aim for about an hour. This one's going to be about a half hour. We might go a little longer here or there. And it's really focused on a framework, which is kind of a first for me, at least, because all my other shows focus on language or ecosystem, ecosystem being iOS, as opposed to an actual framework. So it should be fun, and we can hopefully get a little bit more into the weeds to talk about you know what you need to know to really succeed with Angular. That's cool, man. I'm excited. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and you use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at adventuresinangular.com slash Raygun. So where did Angular come from? From one's imagination, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It actually has been a pretty long road. The original idea was actually that I was a bit frustrated just how much time and effort it takes to build a just a simple form that can persist data. And I don't mean like a full-on app. I, I just mean like, you know, how long does it take to put on a simple form on a, on a site that can collect your email address and your name and then maybe email this to you or store it in the database or something? You know, just imagine you're kind of a mom-and-pop shop and you just want to have a little a guest book or something where people can sign or something like that. And the moment you want to do something, you have to understand things like authentication and databases and all kinds of crazy stuff. And so the original thought for AngularJS was really something very simple, which was, can we, just by adding forms and a bunch of input elements on a page uh, and maybe a bit of a JavaScript, could we turn that into a self-persisted URL bookmarkable kind of a database? So that when you come to a site and you visit and you fill out a form and maybe hit a send button, uh, it gives you a URL and you can actually come back to that URL and edit it in the future. So the original goal was not to build a framework, as you can see. The original goal was to allow people who may be not programming savvy uh, to be able to 
put a page a little more interactivity into their static page than one would normally have to do. So more hmm. more of a toolkit. Kind of, yeah. You know, the, the the target audience was actually for web designers. You know, somebody who doesn't actually know how to program, but it can just throw a bunch of tags on a page and you know turn a form that anybody should be able to do into something that's actually persistable. Is that kind of the root of the way that Angular extends HTML? It is. When you were thinking this, were you like working on your own projects at home or, or what were you working on when you decided you needed to make the beginnings of it? Yes, so I had a full-time job at Google. That was uh, writing, uh, we had a group called uh, Test Mercenaries where we went to different people at, around Google, different teams and helped them with uh, testing hygiene. And the goal was kind of a teach a man to fish kind of a thing. You know, how can we teach these these uh, projects, you know, how best to structure their code for testability and how best to write unit tests and so on. So that was kind of my day job. And, and kind of in spare free time, I was kind of toying the framework. Now, this is not the framework, rather, but this idea of Angular uh, and the persistence. And the kind of the impetus, which I forgot to mention, was my boss who said, you know, Mishko, I think this JavaScript thing might be useful to know, and uh, you're a Java guy. Maybe you should learn, build something in JavaScript to kind of learn how to use it. And so the, this idea of a persistable form was kind of what was born out of the discussion. Okay. What do you mean That's by a persistable form? Again, you just imagine writing an static HTML page, make forms and input fields on it, and throwing a special script back to the top, and all of a sudden that form, when you hit the submit button, actually persists somewhere into some okay. cloud storage, which you don't have to provision. It's automatically provisioned for you. So you really have to know nothing about programming. You just have to know that you make a form, and you throw this tag over there, all of a sudden that form is persistent. That's cool. Uh, and that was kind of the idea behind the, your initial go at the Angular framework? I, again, it's not a framework at that point. It's really just meant for web designers rather than web developers. So how did it become a framework, I guess, is the, the question that everybody's wondering, right? Yes. So time goes on, and I kind of work on this thing in my spare time. And we actually have, you know, as you can imagine, we have to have a uh, uh, database running in the cloud, and we have to solve a lot of interesting problems about how to do cross-site, cross-URL communication, and persistent data, and storage, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so we actually built all this stuff up. And I, I say we, there was another guy, fellow working with me, Adam Abron, and the two of us were kind of building this in our free time. And then fast forward a little bit, and my Google day job, I started working on a project called Google Feedback, uh, which the idea was that uh, you come to a Google website and if something doesn't work quite right, you can click a button in a corner and then highlight a portion of the screen and say, this thing over here doesn't look right to me. I would kind of like to report a bug report to it. And these things go back to Google, and then Google tries to automatically correlate similar bug reports together into um, a cohesive thing. And then based on which things people report more often, you know, you can then prioritize the kind of bug fixes you do. Working so on a back end. Right. So then imagine you have a, uh, a form, and let's say this form is even hosted on Falcon slash slash. You throw a script tag, and then the form becomes persistible. The data has to go somewhere. So in addition to having a uh, script tag that you can include to your site, we were also running a, a database in a cloud, which actually allowed you to store, provision, and then manage all this data out of all these forms. 
And on, on this particular back end, I was working with a fellow called Adam Abron, and he actually built the back end while I, I was kind of more focused on the front end JavaScript. Gotcha. Uh, fast forward a little bit, and we come to uh, Google, where I started working on a new project called Google Feedback. And in Google Feedback, it allows users to kind of highlight portions of the page and send them back to the to Google, and Google then can uh, correlate similar reports and do something useful like create bug fixes. And as you can imagine, if you release this on Google Scale, there's a lot of data coming from all the users. And so we need to we need to have a uh, back-end UI which would allow to triage all these comments coming from all the users. And this UI was actually being built in GWT. In what? Think of, yes, in GWT, Google Web Toolkit. G okay. GWT, for GWT. some reason. Okay. Yeah. And uh, as you can imagine, a lot of what these this application would do would show different forms and different data that was submitted by the user. And so I was kind of scratching my head and saying, you know, this is really just like a simple static form that can persist data and, and so on. And so I started really wondering, like, hey, could I really build something on a large-scale app with these, this idea of just having tags on your HTML that can persist forms? Because if you think about it, any web application is really just a glorified bunch of forms. Okay, yeah. Okay, so this is the point where part of the frustration with GWT got to me where, you know, GWT is the compiled language. There's, you know, I don't want to get into all the details of it, but it, it's not easy. And it took us a lot of effort to bring up a GWT application. I believe it took something like three engineers six months before we got kind of a basic UI going in uh, GWT. And the other frustrating part about GWT was that the code was really not written with testing in mind. Uh, the GWT framework really was not doing things to make it easy on us to write unit tests. And because of my prior life as a uh, testing advocate, you know, this was a big thing that I really cared about uh, to make sure that the app I built in GWT uh, would be testable. And so in kind of a moment of frustration, I went to my boss, Brad, and I said, you know what, this is crazy. Why would you ever want to build stuff this way? You know, I believe using this thing I've been playing with on the side, I can redo this whole app in just a couple of weeks. And Brad kind of called me on it, called my bluff, and he's like, okay, well, if you think you can do it, go for it. And so it took, uh, I think I failed on the two weeks part. I think it took me more like a three weeks to rebuild it. But I took random pieces of the Angular library that allowed just throwing tags on the page and I kind of reassembled, reshuffled them until we were able to build a web app using this thing that was originally meant for web designers and was kind of repurposed for actual web developers that actually understood coding. So this was really the birth of AngularJS. Can I ask a few questions about what it looked like back then? Yeah. So was it a lot heavier, like jQuery and less frameworky, or... What did, like, the code syntax look like? A good question. The idea of tags, for example, ng-show, ng-hide, those were always there, but they were hard-coded into the system. Like, you couldn't just say, oh, let me make a new directive. Like, we gave you a set, and that's the set you had, and you couldn't add or remove things from it. Dependency injection wasn't really part of it. Like, we, you know, in order to have proper testing, we used injection internally, 
but we did not have a dependency injection framework that would automatically assemble your application because there was really no need for it because it was meant as a for web designers, right? They would never have to write. True. Yeah. So, so there were a lot of differences. Okay. So one of the things that happened was that when we started rebuilding the, the application using this bits and pieces of, of of Angular, we saw things that would be kind of nice. Like we said, you know, these these things like ng if and ng hide are super useful, but they're fixed. I cannot extend them. I really wished I had something like a zippy or a tab or something like that. And this is where the idea came of of turning them into proper directives that could actually be extended. And one of the first things we did is we said, okay, could we take this special set of core directives that are hard-coded into the system and could we extract them into reusable components so that even Angular itself was built using the same mechanisms that somebody else would be extending them, right? We didn't want to have this two-class world where Angular gets to have special directives, you know, and special powers, and then the users just get some kind of a second-class directive system. We wanted really to prove to ourselves that Angular itself could be built, the, the core directive could be built by the same API that anybody else could build. Gotcha. How long into it before you started, like, adding controllers for code reuse and for modularity? Like, how, how, how long did you get into it before you started adding those? So it's funny you bring up controllers because controllers went through a lot of different life cycles. At the very beginning, controller, we would do this trick where the controller was the scope. Like, we would monkey patch the methods from the controller onto the scope, and and all the rules of scope inheritance would apply, and you would have this weird, strange world where you would automatically inherit any parent controllers. And it was a kind of a mess. So the controllers thing is something we've been struggling and revamping many times over. So then later on, the controls became something that you inject scope into, and now the latest reincarnation of, you know, controller as syntax is all of, is our way of trying to tame this particular beast. What were some of the other differences between this early version of Angular that you used to build the feedback app for Google and the version that we use today? As I said, there was a lot less dependency injection in there. The code was a lot less structured. For example, the whole bootstrapping wasn't even there, you know. You could think of it like at the very beginning, the only thing we really had was the HTML compiler, uh, which could match up these tags, the directives against it. And, um, you know, once you put it together and other teams want to start using you, then you start asking your questions like, well, how can I make it easier? How can I abstract things away? And it was a constant and continuous kind of a refactoring process of turning this bunch of random code into a reusable framework that we could um, offer to the world. Now, was that framework that you offered the world sort of beta tested at Google then? You could say that. You know, keep in mind that you really go through the genealogy of the source code. The code started in a mercurial repository somewhere, and then um, eventually we moved it into Git and onto a GitHub this is all basically things that we and me and uh, Adam were kind of working on in our free time. Uh, eventually, the code gets open sourced, and only when it gets open sourced do we actually bring the code into Google, where it gets more, a lot, few more, few more times into kind of a real reusable framework. And, and not to no small uh, part to to Igor, who has pushed us a lot, you know, to kind of make it a real project into a real reusable component. So the, the history of the code is very long and very convoluted. 
you know, I wish you could say like, oh, the, the framework was born on this day, but really it, it was not something that we set out to do. And you cannot really say that all, all the code got written in this particular location or even this particular repo. Like if you really look at the history of it, like it is a long history that a lot of it was repurposed and rebuilt, rethought. So when did it initially release publicly? Again, what does publicly mean? You mean like version 1.0 or when we open sourced it or? Yeah, when what? did you, when did you open source it? So that was right before we brought the code into Google and that must have been, let's see, that was before my son was born. So that must have been four and a half, five years ago. Huh. Awesome. What led up to that decision? I mean, it's something that we all appreciate now, but... Uh, it was just a convenient way of getting code that was written outside of Google into Google. You know, you, you know, how do you give somebody rights? Um, if you, this is the code you've been working on and now you want to bring it to as part of Google. So you say, well, I'm just going to open source it, give it an MIT license. And now anybody, including Google, is free to use it. So that was just the simplest path of least resistance. Were there any hmm. political barriers to that or were people pretty open to the idea? You know, that's a very good question. And uh, people always think that Google is like the single unity of, of something. Whereas, you know, if you think about it, Google is made out of a lot of people and a lot of uh, managers and so on. And it really depends on what kind of people you happen to be surrounded with. And I have to say that my manager, Brad, and his manager, uh, they were very supportive and open. And, you know, they were really interested in the gist of it rather than, you know, what is created where. Like They were really interested in, okay, what is the goal we're trying to build? What we're trying to make better? You know, how can we get there in, in the, the right way? rather than worried about, like, what is and isn't politically acceptable. So, you know, at the end of the day, everybody did the right thing. And it's really, if you're interested in doing the right thing, you know, you can always find a way that gets you there. Do you want to move off the individual contributor track and onto the management track? Maybe you want to become a director of engineering or CTO. Let me help. I'm starting a program to help developers move up in their careers using proven techniques and by starting a podcast in order to advance. Right now, I'm only scheduling calls to see where you're at and where you want to go and how you can get there. I'm not doing any sales pitches, just talking to you about where you're at. You can schedule that call at devchat.tv slash next level. Did it ever have a different name besides Angular? Did it ever have like Mishko's framework? Like, I'm sure that's what it was called first. What was like the name though that you call it before Angular? Oh, okay. So Angular was coined by Adam Abrams uh, at the kind of very beginning huh. before we actually brought it in at Google. So it's, it's kind of been known as Angular ever since. But it did have a name before that, and that was Vanilla Binder. Vanilla Binder. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I don't, you should have kept with that one. That one's super catchy. Yeah. <laughs> but then it would have been MB if. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny man that's cool well now we uh is now we know what to have it uh, is it vanilla with a v or manila with an m that's a good question too and there was some confusion about that too <laughs> i actually thought that the manila binders the ones that you put inside of uh you know your cabinet was actually written with a v <laughs> <laughs> So I put it with a B, not realizing that it's actually Manila with an M. Oh. <laughs> so you called it Vanilla Binder BB. Right. That wouldn't have oh, been confusing. Fun. BB. Well, I think we know uh, 
we got some good ideas for NGConf next year. <laughs> vanilla binders. That's right. <laughs> Edible office supplies. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you're getting a kick out of it. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's that's like the the nuances of the language that most people don't get to know, right? So it's kind of a cool little factoid. So that's cool. Was there ever a time when you thought that this was really just not going to go anywhere at all? Yeah, I mean, you always think that when you're at the very beginning. You know, I certainly didn't imagine this kind of success, but I was kind of hoping. So at the very beginning, right, before we kind of brought it into Google, uh, you know, we got super excited when we got one person trying it out and building random things on it. Uh, and, and we kind of showed it to a lot of different people. And it was kind of interesting because most people's reaction was like, what, you're bringing code back to HTML? Didn't you, like, get a know that that's a bad idea? You try to explain it's not quite the same thing. It's actually a good idea, and you know, there's a lot of pushback that, that, that happens. So a lot of the feedback kind of that I was getting at the very beginning was like, why would you ever want to put code in HTML? The, the other thing that I was really struggling with is just how to explain to people what the self-finding, you know, persistent thing Majibab was. And I think the closest I came at the very beginning was just saying, hey, it's like a spreadsheet for the web. And in a spreadsheet, the UI is fixed. Like, you don't get to choose the way the page looks like. But with this thing, you kind of get all the spreadsheets and all the recalculation, all the other benefit that you get with spreadsheet. But you actually get to control the UI through writing your own HTML. So it's kind of like I was trying to explain to people, like, what exactly I was trying to do. That explanation you just gave, you eventually morphed that into this other vision that actually I heard you present when I first was learning about Angular, which is that it's not a framework, it's a better web. And you explained that the browser's a viewport for XML not designed with web apps in mind. Like, when did you formulate that idea? Because that kind of caught me and, like, reeled me in quick. Yeah, so, you know, over time, as we try to explain and find explanation for people what exactly you're building these are the kind of things that you try and they kind of stick but you know i always find it interesting how people think like oh i had this vision from the very beginning not realizing that actually you have different visions and you smoke a lot of things before you get the stuff really (laughs) right and people can relate to it and it becomes the common vocabulary so there's no linear path from point a to point b I think this is an important question. I think for most of the fans, as far as like the people who like love your team on top of the language, when did and how did you guys get Brian involved? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so before Brian, there was Igor and Igor is a guy I found on Twitter. Uh, it was kind of a love at first sight. You know, we decided that he likes testing. I like testing. And then, oh my gosh, we're from the same country. You know, how could you not like each other? Yeah. We and, all know uh, about the Mishko Igor bromance. Yeah, we yeah, get it. So, all right, all right. I'm glad you get that one. <laughs> and so how'd you guys find Brian? Because he's pretty much, everyone has a man crush on him now, too. So how did you guys get Brian involved? Brian, yes. So once we got Igor and Igor kind of whooped it out into shape, and, you know, Igor is really the the, the front-facing, the, 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 the community grower kind of a guy. And Brian was our first intern. And the goal we had for Brian was to build Batarang. And maybe Brian can speak more about it. Yeah, sure. So I was I was just a, a, a college kid hunting for internships. And so I interviewed at Google just kind of generically. Got past some technical interviews. And then eventually 
the time came to match me to a particular project. So I talked to a couple different teams and I talked to Igor and Igor was like super intimidating on the phone. He was like, <laughs> you know, this is, this is really important. Like, we don't want you unless you're really excited about this. Like, this is important. So I was like, ah, oh, this guy sounds like he's kind of scary, but I really want to do JavaScript stuff. So I went with the project and showed up at Google and found out that Igor is just this like big lovable guy that's not actually scary at all. And so I, I worked on this extension, Batarang, that lets you kind of introspect Angular and, and see different things and debug things and get performance metrics. And that's how I got started with the project. When my internship was over, I kind of continued working part-time uh, while I finished my degree. And then I graduated, and now I'm on the team full-time. So that's, that's my, my life story as it pertains to Angular. <laughs> so, Brian, at what point did you start being known as the Joseph Gordon-Levitt of Angular? Actually, I think that was just this morning. <laughs> I think uh, I think you coined that, actually. Awesome. Well, I look forward to hearing that from more sources. <laughs> it's going on on a podcast now, so... Yeah, we, need a, we need a meme for it. <laughs> yeah. I need to update my Twitter bio. Yeah, you do. Why in the heck did you call it battering? That's a good question. So... Originally, there were a couple different names that we had for it, but they were all around this kind of like Angular Chrome DevTools extension thing. And we thought like, oh, that's going to be kind of hard to Google, like Angular and Chrome, because you, you'll get like bug reports from GitHub about like some specific issue in a specific version of Chrome with a specific version of Angular and all of these sort of things. So we, we went with Battering because if you search Angular and Battering, like what, what else is there going to be? <laughs> um, so I'm not sure if I'm the, the name, by the way, for the uh, those aren't, that aren't familiar comes from like this boomerang like thing that Batman has. And Angular has this kind of superhero theme in our release names. So we thought this was like a, a fun, goofy thing to name it. So I, I don't know if I'm beating like the thing from Batman on Google search results quite yet, but <laughs> <laughs> but maybe soon. Come on, community. <laughs> let's get some let's get some bots going. A mechanical Turk to get it up. No, there. you can't you can't game Google searches. You can't That's do it. That's true. That's funny. So uh we're getting toward the end of our time. Is there anything else that we need to know about kind of the origin story of Angular? I like what you did there, Chuck. We're talking about superheroes and you talked about the origin story of Angular. That's right. I like that. I get it. Maybe the only other thing because I get a lot of questions on this that I can't answer would be what other software, other solutions kind of in the web world, I guess, inspired you or influenced you. Uh, I know in the past you've said Flex and kind of running away from the things that GWT or GWT um, was doing was also, that was also kind of a big deal. But were, were there any other other things that you looked at that you think were influential? Uh, I think Flex is the big one because uh, I was actually working for Adobe on a uh, product that Adobe was trying to release that was going to be competition to Flex right before Adobe bought Micromedia and with which it kind of got Flex and, of course, the project I was working on got canceled, which is actually how I got to Google because I was a bit uh, sad and decided <laughs> to look for other opportunities. But Flex did actually influence a lot of the ideas, especially the ideas around data binding um, and things and, and the declarative notion of like throwing a bunch of you know, in Flex, it was XML that kind of looked like HTML, but th this idea of just throwing declarative stuff on a page and actually instantiating components behind it. Hmm. That is interesting. 
I do meet a lot of Angular people who were like Flex developers in a past life, so that makes sense. Well, cool. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. All right. Well, uh, let's get to some picks. Uh, Aaron, do you want to start us with picks? My first pick is Samsung's coming out with a new 105-inch TV. And you can pre-order it for $120,000. That, <laughs> that sounded insane, but uh, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can see it. TV um, or a new Tesla. Let me think about that. <laughs> I know, I know, right? Um, you should also, you should also uh, include a link to your Kickstarter so people can, can donate towards uh, you purchasing this television. Yeah, yeah, I will. No, I will. <laughs> so the other thing is, can I use, which is a site I use a lot, got a facelift. If anyone hasn't seen it late recently, go check it out. I mean, the color scheme's the same, which makes you sad, but it, it, it looks nicer. It's, it's cool. And then there's a program called JS Homes, which I'm going to include in the notes, but I, I'd like everyone to go check it out. It's, um, by a dude named Eric Elliott, and he's, Trying to fight poverty with code, and this JS Homes Kickstarter will allow him to uh, get equipment and facilities to train homeless people on how to code. And he's got some real-life practical examples of how he's helped people. So JS Homes is another thing that I'm going to pick this week. So those are my three picks. Very cool. Brian, what are your picks? My first pick is AngularJS itself. I hey, man, I was going to pick that. That is so not fair. <laughs> I someone's got someone's going to do it eventually. So Why don't you uh, just go like, ahead and pick things like air and food? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah abstractions. Yes. <laughs> abstractions. <laughs> Concepts. Okay. Um, so my real pick is Angular Hint, which is a project that I'm making my interns work on this summer. And the idea is to like instrument Angular to... Uh, give you real-time feedback on like certain best practices. So things like um, you're using this directive wrong, or you're manipulating the DOM from a controller, which you shouldn't do. Um, and so it's still kind of work in progress. But hopefully by the time this podcast is actually released, um, you'll be able to use it. I love that idea. That's awesome, man. Yes, very nice. All right, Joe, what are your picks? I'm only going to make a. One pick today. The new Weird Al album, Mandatory Fun, just came out. I've been listening to it on Spotify and really enjoying it. So maybe I'll do a second pick, which is Spotify. I upgraded to the premium Spotify, the $10 a month Spotify. And I never thought, you know, that I would be paying for music, but I actually am paying for music in sort of a roundabout way. And I'm really appreciating that too. So I'm having a lot of fun listening to Weird Al's Mandatory Fun on my Spotify account. Cool. 
Uh, I'm just going to pick a couple of uh, Chrome plugins that I use that are pretty handy. One of them is uh, Pretty JSON. If you are working on JSON APIs, which you probably are if you're using Angular, then if you just load up the endpoint with Pretty JSON instead of getting this awesome blob of text, it's just this wall of text. Pretty JSON actually parses it out and then shows you what's there. And in some cases, I'm actually passing back HTML within the JSON, and it actually renders that. So it'll render the header tags and all of that stuff too. So it's really nice. I uh, really like that. Another one is Mod Header, and this was handy for me when I was actually I was trying to fake out an endpoint that I was writing that uh, a specific um, agent would be using. In this case, it was for an RSS app, and it was I was trying to tell it that I was iTunes, and so it would you know return RSS instead of HTML. And so by using the Mod Header plugin. I was actually able to uh, to fake it out so that it would say, hey, I'm iTunes, and you need to give me an RSS feed instead of the HTML representation. So um, I like both of those, and uh, yeah, those are my picks. Mishko, what are your picks? Well, since Brian already took AngularJS, I'm going to go time travel, and I'm going to pick the Internet Archive, and I'm going to ask you to go find getangular.com back in the history so you can see the site as it was originally. Very okay, nice. Cool. And finally, before we wrap up, uh, do you have some uh, tip or trick or favorite thing that you like to do with Angular? Write tests. Tip of the week, write tests. But TDD is dead. What? <laughs> nice. What about, Brian, tip of the week? Uh, my tip of the week is before you file an issue on GitHub, Search existing issues, including closed issues. Love see it. if someone else has, found, has also filed this. That's my tip. It's kind awesome. of self-serving. Awesome. awesome. Aaron, do you have a tip of the week? Yeah, don't go crazy on your NG classes. Keep them simple. <laughs> Joe? My tip of the week is uh, use good names for your injectable objects in Angular. And my Ooh, dude. My tip of the week is, uh, depending on what your back end is, I ran into an issue with uh, cores, which is the cross whatever something, because I was using a different uh, subdomain. Cross-origin uh, restriction? Yeah. So make sure that you understand that and have the right headers on your back end if you're going cross-domain. Cool. All right. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.